Hi, welcome to Ready to Scale Season 3. I'm your host, Ellie Perlman. I'm a real estate investor, syndicator, and operator of multifamily properties. And in this season, we're going to focus on dialogues that drive success. Building real wealth is not a fairy tale nor rocket science, but there's so much to learn. So grab a cup of coffee and join me each week for in-depth conversations with successful real estate investors. Conversations that are designed to help you drive your wealth, investment, knowledge, and lifestyle to the next level. And of course, you can always go to my website, elliperlman.com, to read more about investing passively in multifamily. Hey, everyone. I'm Ellie Perlman, but wanted to just uh, give you a little bit of a background. It's going to be really quick. I'm a multifamily owner and operator. I buy multifamily properties in Texas, Florida, Georgia, the Carolinas, and we've bought, you know, real estate before COVID and during COVID. Hopefully soon enough, I can say that we, you know, that COVID was behind us. Unfortunately, that's uh, not the situation today. And even though there's a lot of uncertainty in the market today, not only in real estate, but in real estate also, in addition to um, other asset classes and investment vehicles, investors are still interested in real estate. There's still benefits in you know investing in real estate today. And I wanted to share with you as passive investors, what you should be aware of when you're investing in real estate today. So as I mentioned before, I own multifamily properties, about 2,300 units today, um, over $320 million in assets under management, and mainly Class B assets. So the first thing to really keep in mind is that things have changed. And things have changed, you know, the cash flow is still strong on some assets, some, you know, more than others. But in addition, the main change that w- that basically happened is on two fronts on tenants ability to pay because as you know it's not a secret there's a lot of tenants that cannot pay that basically lost their jobs and on the investor side investors are actually right now anticipating lower returns especially on newer deals so as a limited partner, when you're looking to invest in a deal, you're, for the most part, I would say 99% of investors are not underwriting the deal as, you know, uh, to the same depth as the general partner and the sponsor does, and that's totally fine. However, when you're investing passively, there are a few things that I would recommend you to look at. And if it's not in the offering memorandum, have a conversation with the sponsor and ask them about those specific, the specific things that I'm going to mention. So I've worked with my acquisitions team. We've been, you know, tweaking and adjusting our underwriting. And I know how the smallest basically change in, in a certain sale in the underwriting model can really impact returns for better or worse, obviously. So The first thing that I wanted you to remember from this meeting today is that the secret is basically in the underwriting assumption. A deal is as good as the underwriting assumption. And it's really, you know, hard to make assumptions sometimes when you you don't know what's going to happen in five, seven or 12 months. The first thing that I would look at, or at least try to understand as a passive investor what what is the occupy the occupancy or 
you know, vacancy levels that the GP is assuming. So if the GP assumes, you know, something extreme like 98% occupancy, it may or may not be realistic. And you got to understand why they're assuming what they're assuming and what the market what the market's occupancy is and how it has changed during COVID. If the sponsor doesn't know how to answer those questions, then they don't know the deal and they don't know the area that well. And that should be, you know, red flag. So not, you know, the, the offer memorandum doesn't always have the occupancy levels. So just write an email if you're looking at a deal or call the GP and ask, what are your occupancy projections are and how did you come up with this number? And what I would love to know, because I'm also a passive investor on my deals and also on, on other um, sponsors deals. I'm always looking at the occupancy levels and I'm trying to understand if they make sense. So if the assumptions actually make sense, is 95 reasonable during COVID as an occupancy level? It really depends on how the market was doing before COVID and how the market is doing during COVID and how this property was doing before COVID and during COVID. So if the property was at 98% occupancy for two years and now the sponsor is assuming 94%, that could be a reasonable assumption for occupancy during COVID. But obviously, if, you know, the market has been or the property were around 92 percent and the sponsor believes that they can push the occupancy up to 95 percent, it may be reasonable depending on what the story is there. So, would you know, I wouldn't disqualify the deal, but I would want to understand how is it possible that you think you can push occupancy because during COVID, actually occupancy can can go down. So understanding occupancy, that's one of the things that you really want to understand. If the sponsor is missing the occupancy projection and they're assuming 98% and the property is running at 92%, most likely they won't be able to make the cash flow, the cash flow projections. And, you know, they're not going to be able to, um, to provide enough cash flow to cover for, you know, payments for all investors. So just be aware of the occupancy. It's extremely important. And there's no kind of rule of thumb. It's just whether the sponsor understands the market, how the market was before and how it is during COVID and whether it makes sense that right now the, the property is operating, you know, at 95% or 92%. The second thing you need to understand when you're looking at a deal as a passive investor is the rent growth and the renovation pace. So rent growth is something beautiful. This is basically how we as real estate investors, that's how we make money. It's very hard to make money if we cannot push the rents. And for every value add deal, basically every sponsor is looking, you know, at the deal and they're trying to assess how much they can raise rents by $100, $200, $170. And if the projection is $150, but because of COVID, it's much harder to bring tenants to pay those premiums and they can only push rents by $120, then the returns look very different. 
Now I can share with you that, you know, we, we own asset assets in, in Texas and, and in Atlanta and also, you know, in other markets in, in Florida, the assets that are in Atlanta right now are able to produce the highest dollar amount per unit that we're raising the rents there. So it goes any, it could be as low as 3% and as high as 39.4% rent increases during COVID, which I was stunned that we can actually push rents by almost 40%, but we can because people are fleeing New York and they're coming from other places to Atlanta. So right now Atlanta's real estate market is so hot and in such high demand, then there there's an opportunity to really raise those rents. But I would never put 39% rent increases in the underwriting. And this is something that normally sponsors are not going to put in the offering memorandum how much they assume rents can grow. And I'm talking about there are two two parts of rent growth. One is organic growth and one is the premium. And I know it may be super boring, but but this is super crucial. Before you write a $50,000 check, it's really important to understand the distinction distinction between them and what the assumptions that the sponsor was making. So the, the premiums, are basically what the newly renovated units are going to get. 150 or $200, these are the, the rent bumps above the base rent. So if someone is looking at a classic unit versus a, a renovated unit, $150 in premiums, mean that means that the renovated units is making $150 more per month. The organic rent growth, which most sponsors are not talking about, is how much do you think that um, that the rents are going to increase just based on supply and demand in the market. That's in addition to the rent growth from renovations. A lot of sponsors love 3% as a baseline. And I used to like this number also in the past, but I can tell you with COVID, I don't really feel comfortable taking 3% and, and throwing it, you know, in, in the underwriting model. And you would be amazed if you change 3% rent growth to 2% or 1.5%, that can destroy a deal. That can basically bring a deal from 14% IRR to 11% IRR. Because what happens not only the cash flow is lower during the whole period. When you want to exit in five years, your NOI is much lower if you couldn't raise, you know, the the if you couldn't raise the the rents by three percent. So your exit price can be lower by millions of dollars. And because that, that that's basically that's a beauty in in multifamily. The higher the income, the higher the price you can get for the property when you sell it. So if it's not in the offering memorandum, as passive investors, always, always ask the sponsor, okay, we're in COVID right now. What are the premiums that you're planning to charge? Why do you think you can get those premiums? Make sure that the sponsor did market research and under, and that it's kind of proven in the market that you can get those rent bumps, but also ask what's the, the organic rent growth? And why did you choose this number? Why did you choose 3% or 2%? So I can share with you, we're basically at the lake, we're using 
machine learning technology to predict the rent growth. And the technology we're using is projecting every year in the next five years, what would be the rent growth at the market, sub-market, and property level. So I don't just choose 3% because I think it's a, it's a nice conservative number. It's actually not conservative if there's no research to back it up. Um, so w- when we're using the machine learning technology and that technology is telling us, okay, in this, in this market, this property, we project that in the next year, you'll be able to increase rents by 2% and then 1.4% in year two. These are the numbers I'm going to use. I'm not going to use 3% because it's a number that a lot of sponsors have been using and we kind of got used to it and it's a nice, you know, acceptable number. Um, Even more than that, I can tell you, I can share with you because of COVID, what we do, and I know that some other, that some sponsors are also doing it. We're underwriting to 0% rent increases. We're trying to, of course, push rents from the first day of operations, but I don't want to add it to my underwriting. So every dollar I can push rents, once I take over, once we complete the transaction, this is an additional dollar that I can share with investors. So even though we've been getting, I think last week it was an average of 25% rent increases. I don't want to put 25%. I don't want to put even five, even 5% rent increases because there's still uncertainty and we don't know what's going to happen with, you know, Biden is now, you know, first day um, in office. I believe I read today that he already extended the eviction moratorium. So that basically can change things. So the best thing to do, if you invest right now as a passive investor, make sure that the rent growth is minimal. So we use zero to 1% in the first six to 12 months. If the deal works with no rent increases in the first year of operation, this is a conservative deal that, more likely to, you know, perform even during COVID. So as I mentioned, occupancy was the first thing we talked about. And the second thing is rent growth. The third thing before I I do a little bit of a break and let you guys ask questions, if you have questions um, in the underwriting, in the offer memorandum that you should look at is bad debt. So as I've mentioned, um, the eviction moratorium has been extended, which means that as, as owners, we cannot evict. Now, it's not exactly true. If you read the eviction moratorium closely and you compare it with the first one from last year, they're very different. The first one last year basically didn't allow us as owners to even start the eviction process to anyone. The new eviction moratorium, the one that is in effect today, allows us to evict. And in fact, we're still in the eviction process on some tenants right now, but we need to stop only if the tenant is doing their research and they find out online that they need to sign a declaration that says you cannot evict me because I declare here um, that I lost my job and I still owe this money to you. And I make less than I think the threshold was 90, anywhere between 70 and $90,000 a year. And only then we need to stop 
the eviction, but many people are not aware of it. Many don't want to sign it. And for those tenants, we are willing to start the process. So many of them come to the office and say, okay, okay, we get it. We, we're going to pay you the rent. Some of them don't. And, um, but we still continue with the process and we can evict them because they haven't signed this declaration. So occupancy, rent growth, and bad debt. And I forgot to mention the renovation pace, which is kind of straightforward. Just ask the sponsor, how many units do you plan on renovating every month if it's 20 units? So what's the plan? Because they, they, they have to hire people that will be able to help them turn 20 units a month. That's That's a high number. Up to 10 to 13 a month, the property management company can handle it. So if the if the deal works only when you can turn 20 to 30 units, you need to understand from the sponsor what the plan is and whether they have the right resources to pull off something like this. Another um, thing that you want to be aware of when you're investing passively during COVID is the tenant profile and occupation. When you're looking at a deal to invest in right now in multifamily, make sure you ask the sponsor whether they did the research on the tenant profile and where do they work. And the sponsor should know by the time they they send, you know, a deal your way, your way, they should know who the tenants are. They should know if the tenants are in medical or in tech. What's the exposure to accommodation and service industry? So basically, when we're buying a property, part of the due diligence is to do a, um, a, a tenant analysis. So we know, okay, 5% are in accommodation and service, 17% in medical, which is for us the best you know, type of tenants, um, 25% in, in IT and technology. So we know, okay, what's the exposure? Because you have to understand that things have changed. If pre-COVID, you know, obviously it didn't matter if 30% were in the service industry, as long as they were able to pay. Now, if you're buying the same property, you're at a much higher risk, you know, uh, profile because 30% may not be able to pay the rent. So that's one of the things that as a passive investor, I always ask, what's the tenant profile? Also to make sure that the sponsor, you know, did their um, their homework and that they know exactly um, what is it that they're buying and what the exposure is to COVID. And we don't buy anything unless we actually know that the submarket before we look at the tenant profile but that the submarket is diverse enough if there's you know in cities right now that are heavily heavily reliant on accommodation it's probably riskier today than obviously pre-covid because you still have employees and tenants that are unable to pay rents because of um you know of the pandemic um Another thing just to be aware of that the new the new stimulus bill actually allows landlords to apply for rent assistance on behalf of their tenants. They need to sign the tenant on it and we're still waiting for some more guidance, but at some point we'll be able to apply to assistant on future and on delinquent on basically 
um, on past due rent that wasn't paid from tenants that are still on the property. So there's a specific amount of money that is allocated to help tenants paying their rents and their utilities. And that's something that we're also looking into just to make sure that we can apply on their behalf and get that funds directly to us, which is, this is huge. It wasn't there before. So just something to keep in mind when you're thinking about investing, you know, today in multifamily. Um, so again, just to sum it up, we talked about occupancy, understanding the rent growth and understanding the bad debt, which is basically, that's the third thing. Um, the third aspect that you need to understand as passive investors which is basically what is the assumption that the sponsor do- makes when it comes to bad debt? So bad debt is basically the delinquent, the late rents that the sponsor does not think they can charge anymore. And every sponsor has their own rules, whether it's within 30 days, within 90 days, within 60 days or six months. And once it becomes bad debt, then you can deduct your taxable income against that because it's basically, it's kind of a loss that you experience because you cannot collect those rents. So one of the things that is extremely important to understand is when you're looking at a deal today as a passive investor, what is the bad debt? Normally, it's not going to be in the offering memorandum maybe hidden in the uh, performa, but make sure you talk with your sponsor, you ask them what's the bad debt historically been in the in the area, in the submarket and in on the property. As a rule of thumb, 3% of income, that's kind of the higher end of the spectrum. Above that, that could be a red flag. Now, that was, of course, before COVID. So if a property had an average of 2% and the sponsor tells you, yeah, I'm assuming 1% year over year, it doesn't really make sense. It doesn't make sense that before COVID, there was you know 2% and now you're saying that the Um, bad debt is going to be lower. If anything, bad debt should increase at least, you know, in the underwriting, at least in the next 12 to 18 months before it goes down. So just make sure that besides the occupancy and the rent growth, the bad debt, and these are the three things, occupancy, rent growth, and bad debt. These are the three things that are driving our returns. When I'm running the numbers, any adjustment to one of those three numbers can really make a deal either either die or or make it look really great. So you want to understand what was the thought process behind it. Um, so I'm going to stop now at this point um, to see if anyone has any questions. Um, I have a question here from Jay. As a limited partner, how can you distinguish whether or not a distribution is a return of capital versus return on capital by reviewing the PPM? Or do you simply just need to ask? So that's a very, very good question. Um, from, you know, if you just see in, in um, another line item in your bank or another check, you don't necessarily know if it's return of capital or return on capital unless you read the PPM. And the PPM is going to outline whether the returns 
you know, from the cash flow during the hold period, uh, our returns on capital or of capital, usually the cash flow that's return on capital, return of capital. That means that if you get a certain payment, it reduces your initial investment. So let's say after 18 months, the sponsor decides to refinance the property. This is where the question of return of capital versus return on capital is more relevant. So let's say you wrote a hundred thousand dollar check after 18 months and, and sorry, and you got, you know, eight months returns in year one and in year two, that's from the rents and the income. And then after two years, the sponsor successfully refinanced the property, put new financing. Then then the the delta, because the loan now is bigger, because when you refinance, the valuation of the property increases. So if you took 75% LTV now versus 75% LTV two years later when the, the property is worth a lot more because you increase the income, then you can repay the old loan and you're going to be left hopefully with a few million dollars in your hands. Now at that point, and again, this is you have to go through the PPM or just ask the um, the, the sponsor, because the truth is the sponsor can take it in, in one of two ways, either the check you're going to get as a limited partner, as th- that would be your pro rata share of the loan proceeds. It can be either return on capital or return of capital. And it all depends on the PPM return of capital. That means that if let's say you wrote a hundred a check of a hundred thousand dollars and you received after two years, your portion of the refinancing is fifty thousand dollars. So if it's return of capital, it means that your investment is adjusted instead of a hundred K to fifty K because you got fifty K back. So the sponsor returned part of your capital. It's important because moving forward, if you're expecting 8% return, that's the cash on cash every year, it's going to be 8% of 50K and not on 100K. It's also very important when the property is going to be sold in five years or three years later, then your share is would be as if you've invested 50K and not 100K. I like to do it as return on capital, not returns of capital. Different sponsors do it differently. I don't like to play, you know, games and and shrink the the investment, you know, from a hundred to fifty. If someone put a hundred the way that I see it, they put a hundred for the long haul for all the five years. Um, but this is something you should you should ask. You know, look at the PPM to make sure that it's in line with what the sponsor is telling you. But every sponsor treats it um, differently, so. Very good question. There's also some tax implications I'm not going to get into because it's also not my uh, my area of expertise. Um, so if you have any more questions, um, feel free to, to add them here. It could be related to COVID, could be not related to COVID. Um, but I can tell you, you know, until we get the next um, question, if we get it, what's happening, I can share with you what's happening right now in the market that you should also be aware of. As sponsors, I can share with you that, there aren't many deals at this point. Many sellers normally don't like to sell in the first month because 
a lot of a lot of sellers are traveling. You know, we just got out of the holiday season. So most deals every year are being released normally in February and March. And I would expect you're probably going to see in the last 45 days of Q1 or towards the end of Q1, you, you're going to probably see a lot more deals from many sponsors. So I know right now you feel that there aren't many deals. This is the nature. Every year it's the same. And with COVID, it's even more significant because a lot of deals that were supposed to be released to the market last year, a lot of sellers just decided to wait. There's going to be this year a lot more. And I'm talking with, with the brokers and that's what I'm hearing from them. There's going to be a lot of deals coming up in the market. So when you see a deal, don't make a rush decision. There's going to be a lot of deals out there. Um, and again, a deal is as good as the assumptions that the uh, the sponsor is making. At least that's what um what's that's what I believe in. Um, have a question from David. Have you experienced any increase in insurance costs due to COVID, due to COVID concerns, or are any sponsors underwriting an increase? Yes, and David, unfortunately, the increase in insurance costs started way before COVID. Um, if I were underwriting, let me let me think. Before COVID, I was basically underwriting $275, dollars to $275 um, per unit per year. The I I increased that in my underwriting, I increased the cost to about $320. And since COVID, things have shifted, but the 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 uh, insurance cost increased um, way before COVID. I didn't see a a huge increase during COVID, and I admit I'm going to tell you a little bit of a, a some of the a secret part of my secret sauce is we constantly renegotiate policies, um, contracts. You know, I used to be a lawyer before, so. Contract negotiation, this is the strategy I go for. That's how we keep the costs pretty low. Um, so, you know, insurance, for instance, we saved about $6,000 uh, last year on one property alone because we just renegotiated instead of just renewing it because that would be the easiest thing to do. We just brought in, you know, a new insurance agent and said, hey, this is how much we're paying, save us money. And, um, and that's, you know, we also actually hire a company that can help us renegotiate all the contracts. So we actually saw a decrease in insurance costs, but across the board, insurance costs are increasing. It started before COVID. And as I mentioned, it's, um, there, there it would probably increase a little bit more, but, um, you know, it's, it's not something that would increase 40 50 percent but it's it's still there um and i always like to increase the budget a little bit over what i think i can actually you know i actually need uh to run the property so yes insurance is definitely it's it's not even about insurance insurance is one of them but payroll has increased significantly in the last 24 months um normally we would underwrite we we used to underwrite twelve hundred dollars a unit. Right now, it's it, it increased by a hundred dollar per unit per year. 
So payroll costs are actually increasing. Unfortunately, I can't have the team sit at home and work remotely. They have to be in the property. They have to go there. They have to um, get into the units to fix things and renovate units. They have to meet with tenants and show them around. So we can't save money on office space. They actually they actually have to go um, to the property. I have one property that I have 10 people coming into the office every day, five maintenance guys and five um, leasing officers. They're considered essential workers. So um, unfortunately, the cost just increased because now on top of payroll, I need to buy everyone, you know, the PPE and um, hand sanitizers and make sure that they're safe. And so the costs are increasing across the board. So thank you, David, for that question. Um, so unless uh, you guys have another question, I think we covered pretty much everything. And again, I don't intend, I don't want you to become underwriters and start running numbers, you know, uh, in a crazy way. But when you're, before you're writing a check, just understand that the assumptions on rent growth, on bad debt and on occupancy, it's so fundamental and it's it's it impacts the bottom line IRR and cash on cash tremendously. So if you don't see it in the offering memorandum, just have a conversation. It it takes 15 minutes to ask about those three line items. Go over them with your sponsor, with with the syndicator that you're you're working with and just sense if the answers you know make sense to you. Sometimes it will make sense to one person and not to another. So just make sure that that you're you're doing your homework. I know that I'm I know everyone says that they're conservative. I'm also very conservative. Uh, you know, sometimes I get the underwriting back from our lender that says this is too conservative. You need to change it. This is you're exaggerating. So um, that's uh, but but that's who I am. You know, I bring my own money to every deal. Uh, my father-in-law invests in on every deal and my brothers-in-law invests on every deal. So I'm super careful. You know, you, you don't, it's one thing to bring a deal that is not, that is not very, um, that it's not super strong to investors. It's a whole, whole nother level to sit with your father-in-law around, uh, you know, the dinner table. So I'm just being very careful. And he has been investing on, on every single deal. Um, so just to to show you, you know, we're we're we're, uh, we're kind of we like to invest as a family, and uh, and and that's why I'm I'm super super careful when it comes to deals. It's not good for for myself or for my family. I'm not bringing it to investors. So that's it. I hope it wasn't uh, extremely boring. I know underwriting can be boring, but guys, I mean, this is part of the 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 things that you have to kind of understand. Don't you don't have to run numbers just ask those questions and make sure you're comfortable with the answers. And I'm happy to share with you the tracker that I've created for passive investors. I'm using it also for my deals as well. Um, and that's it. Hope that I um, added some value and that you, um, you know, that it was interesting for you to hear how things are during COVID from the other side of the table, you know, from the sponsor's point of view.
This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.